If you have your Bibles, open up with me to Exodus chapter 33. That's where it'll be tonight. You know, being a prophet of God is hard business. But I wonder how many of us want to be a prophet. Maybe we want a relationship with God like one of the prophets had. Maybe we like the idea of, of God telling us exactly what to do. That, that direct line of communication, that clear standards, clear expectations, and think, I want to be a prophet like Elijah. But then we read the Old Testament. Have you ever considered the absolute, the crazy things that God called the prophets to do? How about this? Uh, there's a guy in the Old Testament, you probably heard him, named uh, Jonah. God told Jonah to go and preach repentance to the Assyrians. You know anything about the Assyrians? The Assyrians were... Uh, Jonah's like biggest enemy. They probably came in, they probably conquered his relatives, his family, beheaded them, and put his family's heads on poles outside of the city that God called him to march into. No wonder Jonah said, yeah, I'm going the opposite direction, 2,000 miles in the opposite direction. Or uh, how about this? How about Ezekiel? Did you know that God called Ezekiel to lay on his side for 390 days? One day for every year that Israel abandoned their covenant with God. Would anyone sign up for that job? No, I didn't think so. Or uh, how about Isaiah? We skipped over this, uh, this chapter when we were going through the book of Isaiah, mostly because I don't know how I'd preach it. Um, did you know that God called Isaiah, you know where I'm going, to not wear clothes for three years, to wander around naked for three years? No, it wouldn't. That's probably the most G-rated way to put that. I appreciate that, Jake. If you don't believe me, read Isaiah 20. It's in the text. But I'm convinced the hardest ask of any prophet had to be Hosea. Had to be. God goes to Hosea. Hosea was a prophet to the 10 northern tribes. I think it was the 9th century BC. Comes to Hosea and says, Hosea, I want you... So go down to the red light district, and I want you to marry a prostitute. That's what I would have said, but <laughs> that's not what Hosea said. Compared to Jonah, Hosea obeys without delay. He does exactly what God says. And, and imagine all the things that Hosea gave to his new wife. He gave her food. He gave her shelter. He gave her a a home, a, a family. He provided for her needs. But of course, the greatest thing he gave her was unconditional love. She didn't deserve love. She didn't earn love, but he gave it to her. The only mistake that Hosea made was he picked a woman whose name was Gomer. I mean, no offense to Gomer, but not the most becoming of names. But you know what happened, right? After making a covenant, after making a promise, after they have children together, the lure of sin, the pull of her old life is too strong. And she leaves the ideal marriage covenant and she goes back to her old way of life, shattering her marriage and leaving Hosea to pick up the pieces. That's right where we were last week in Exodus 32, isn't it? God makes this covenant with his people, with Israel. And everything is working out perfectly. They experience the glory and the goodness of God in the mountain. They hear the thunder. They see the lightning. They see God's presence coming down on the mountain. 
And then they reply to God as a nation and they say, hey, we're going to obey. We're going to do everything that you're asking us to do. And then weeks, maybe days later, while Moses is taking too long on the mountain, they abandon God and they build a golden calf and they start worshiping it. They don't just commit adultery. They commit cosmic treason, shattering their covenant with God. And there Moses is left to clean up the pieces. And Moses was angry. He's coming down the mountain. He sees the dancing. He hears the music. He has those Ten Commandments in his hand and out of anger, he throws them on the ground and shatters them in a thousand pieces, a picture of the covenant that they'd completely destroyed with their God. But you remember what Moses did. He intercedes for his people. He goes to bat for the Israelites. God says, I'm going to wipe every single one of them off the face of this earth. And Moses, I'm starting over with you. And Moses says, Lord, I don't want you to do that. Don't forget about the promise that you made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Don't forget your people. And God relents, he changes course, and he extends that grace, that kindness. He extends forgiveness to his people. But forgiveness is different than restoration, isn't it? Israel was still left with a divide in their relationship. They were still left with the consequences of their sin. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 1 of Exodus 33. Follow along with me. I'll just read the first three verses. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I'll give it. I'll send an angel before you, I'll drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But, don't miss this, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you're a stiff-necked people. Do you see the distinction? God tells Moses, I'm going to fulfill my promise. I'm going to go to the promised land. I'm even going to drive out the nation, but I'm not going with you. I'm going to send an angel on my behalf. An angel is going to lead you, but God says, I'm not leading you anymore because if I'm in your midst, of course, God knows the future. Of course, he knows the people are going to abandon the covenant again, and he knows that they're going to deserve to die again. He says, I'll kill him on the way. It's better for an angel to go. But God, he didn't remove his presence from Moses. He keeps his presence with Moses. He still has a relationship with Moses, but he removes his presence from the people. In verse 4, when the people heard the news, when Moses conveyed the news that God wasn't going with them anymore, their hearts were shattered. They called the news disastrous. They wanted God to go with them. But Moses still had that relationship with God, and Moses built what we call the tent of meeting. It was a tent, it was right outside the camp, and that's where Moses would go, and that's where he would have conversations, meetings with God. And Moses actually gives us uh, an inside scoop into one of those conversations. After this disastrous news that God's not going back with his people, Moses conveys the news to the people. He goes back to the tent to have another conversation with God. And everyone can see it. It's right outside the tent. They can see the presence of God descending on the tent. They see Moses go in. And the people, they're anxious because they don't know what God's going to say. They don't know how this meeting, this conversation is going to go. 
Moses recounts the conversation like this in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you'll send with me. Yet, you've said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I might know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, the Lord, said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be to know that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? It's not in your going with us, so that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Okay, let's pause there. We, we have to understand what's going on in this part of the text. Moses leads off. You've... <laughs> Hi, Willie. <laughs> it's fun when your one-year-olds learn how to say dad for the first time. Moses leads off, and, and he says, you've asked me to bring up this people, but, but who are you going to send with me? That we forget that Israel's right in the middle of a huge plague, that people are dying left and right, and Moses asks the Lord, you're going to send us up. Who are you going to send with me? In other words, after this plague's done, is anyone even going to be alive? So Moses is asking for some clarity. He wants to know God's ways. He wants to know God's plan. And again, he subtly reminds God, this is your people. Don't give up on them. In a directly indirect way, Moses is again asking, don't forget about your people. And again, this is on the heels of God promising to remove his presence from the people for the rest of the journey. But look at verse 14 again. And he, the Lord, said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. We're at a bit of a limitation with our English language, because you doesn't have a singular plural distinction. But if we read this in Hebrew, it's interesting, you is actually singular. So you see what Moses does. In the verses before, he says, God, go with, up with us, the nation. Don't forget about us, the nation. And then God says in verse 14, my presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you, Moses, rest. It's an important distinction, isn't it? Because God's not actually answering Moses the way that he desires. And Moses, he's not satisfied with God's response. So he goes back again and says, God, if you don't go with me, even deeper than that, if you don't go with us, Moses says, I am not going. Do you understand what Moses is asking for, Right? He's not just asking for an angel to lead them into the promised land. He doesn't want God just to be with him. No, he wants God's presence to return to all of the people. He wants the covenant renewed. He wants things the way they were before the golden calf. He wants God to not just wipe away their sin completely, but also to restore the relationship that they had. He wants a new covenant. That's what he's asking for. He's wanting a, a fresh start, a clean slate for not himself, for all of the people. That's not a small request, is it? Look at verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you've spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Hmm. The Lord answers his request. Just as you've asked, I'll do. I will restore the covenant. I will wipe the slate clean. And I will begin afresh with my people. And the covenant is renewed. And that's where I would expect the text to end. That's where I would think, okay, great. Moses goes out of the tent, 
and tells all the people, you won't believe it. We're back on. We're going to the promised land. God's going with us and throw a party. That's what I expect. But that's not what happens. Moses asks this completely out of left field question. Verse 18. And Moses said, please show me your glory. What? Moses, you're in the tent of meeting, meeting with God. You've seen God's glory more than anyone else. And then he says, God, show me your glory. (laughs) What in the world is Moses asking for? I'm glad that you asked. It's important for us to answer that question. The word glory, it's the Hebrew word kabod. It means a weightiness, a heaviness. We've been talking about glory all summer. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, it's the weight of glory. And Moses, he was no stranger to God's glory. He experienced God's glory for the first time in his life at the burning bush. And then he experienced God's glory through the plagues in Egypt and and through the entire exodus. And then he's meeting with God on the mountain. He's having conversations with God. He's experiencing the glory of God. But what's he asking for here? He wants something more. He's asking for a display of God's glory beyond anything that he's ever seen. Every other glory experience for Moses has been veiled. It has not been complete. God has kept part or a big part of his glory, his weightiness away from Moses. God revealed himself through fire, through a cloud, through the bush. But now Moses is saying, I need that email confirmation. I need to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are going with us and that you're not going to abandon me, you're not going to abandon your people, even though they deserve it. That's what Moses is asking for. So he asks to see the entirety of God's glory, the fullness of his presence. And God gives him the most gracious reply imaginable. Verse 19, I'll make all of my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I'll show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God says, I'll I'll let my goodness pass before you. Another way to translate that would be the best. I'll allow the best of me to pass before you. I'm going to give you the absolute most that you can handle, more than you've ever experienced, but you can not see my face, is what the Lord says. His face, it's a symbol, a metaphor of the fullness of his glory, for no man can see the fullness of God's glory and live to tell the tale. It's ironic, even Moses. Moses is God's man, God's prophet, one of the greatest leaders in the entire Old Testament. He had a relationship with God that went unparalleled through the rest of Scripture, through the rest of the Old Testament. And even Moses couldn't behold all of God's glory and live to tell the tale. But I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but wait, there's people in in Scripture, in the Old Testament, they saw God's glory, right? And they didn't die. So what's the difference? I actually think looking at those texts in the Old Testament, every time someone encounters God's glory, it's not in the fullness of glory. It's a, maybe a veiled experience. That was true for Moses. I think that was true in Exodus 24. When we talked about the 70 elders beholding God's glory in a special way beyond the people, do you remember how they described God? There's only one thing they talked about. 
They talked about the sapphire stones under his feet. That was what they saw. They didn't experience the fullness of God's glory. Or even Isaiah in Isaiah 6, he had a vision of the throne room. And what did Isaiah describe? He described the angels and he described the train of his robe. It was still a veiled experience even for Isaiah. And even Moses, he'd met with the Lord face to face, but the fullness of God's presence had been covered. Here Moses is asking for something new, something beyond what he'd ever experienced. He wants all of God's glory. And God's gracious. He says, I'll tell you my name. I'll even declare to you my attributes. I'll give you everything you can handle, but you can't behold all of my glory and live. So Moses does what he'd done a handful of times. He wakes up early the next morning and the professional mountaineer, 80 years old, again, descends to the top, ascends to the top of Mount Sinai. Can you imagine the anticipation? God's promise and encounter with himself that he'd never had before. He probably didn't sleep at all the night before. He wakes up even before the sun starts to rise. He climbs the mountain. He prepares for a glory moment of his life. And everything happens just as God scripted it up. God takes Moses. He puts him behind a cleft in the rock. God's presence passes by, and God declares this. Look at thirty-four, chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him and said, The Lord, the Lord, a merciful, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's self-revelation of himself is remarkably profound. He starts with his name, Yahweh. I am who I am. You can't put God in a box. He can't be titled. God is bigger. He's greater. He is God, and he alone defines who he is. That's the same name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, which was on the same mountain. And here, after all the things that happened between experience, mountaintop experiences, Moses again hears the same name, the Lord, Yahweh, I am who I am. And then God declares five attributes. He starts with compassion. What a great place to start, that God's merciful. He has a big heart for his people that he genuinely cares about them. God is gracious. Over and over again, God gives his people blessings that they do not deserve. God's patient. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. That word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed. It means covenant loyalty. Even though the people had been fickle, he's loyal. Even though the people had been unfaithful to their marriage covenant, God was faithful. And then faithfulness means abounding in truth. There's nothing dishonest about God. And then as the text continues, verse 7 even adds more attributes. He forgives sin, but he won't clear the guilty. We see both sides of the same coin, God's wrath, but also his forgiveness. And then God verbally reveals himself to Moses. He also visibly reveals himself to Moses. The text says that Moses saw God's back. How in the world does that work? God is spirit. God does not have a back. How did Moses see God's back? Well, again, this is another anthropomorphism. You've heard that word a lot this summer because on the top of the mountain, we've seen the text 
the biblical writers ascribing to God human attributes so that we can relate to him in a way that we can understand. And that's what's happening here. The back would be a a portion of God's presence. His face would be the fullness of his presence. And God hides Moses behind behind a rock so that he doesn't see his face, but he sees his back, a portion of God's presence, the greatest that Moses can handle, the greatest glory of God that Moses has ever beheld. How do we know? How do we know that this is more glory than Moses has ever taken in in his life? Because Moses was physically changed. He went down from the mountain. You know what happened to Moses? He glowed. His face literally radiated. His kids didn't need nightlights in the room anymore because he was the nightlight. He was glowing and it terrified the people. He had to put a veil over his face so the people weren't terrified. Because of this glory experience, this encounter with the glory of God, Moses radiated light when he went down the mountain. This was the greatest moment of his life. And look how he responded. There's literally no other way to respond. Look at verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go into the midst of us, for it's a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Look at verse 10. Behold, I'm making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it's an awesome thing that I will do with you. Moses encounters God's glory. He hears God's name and the self-revelation of God, and the only thing that Moses could do, the only thing that you or I could do, is his face hits the ground as fast as it could, and he worships God. A part of his worship experience, which had to be the the craziest worship moment of his life. It's not a big concert venue. It's not church on a Sunday morning. It's just him and God. The raw, the real glory of our creator. And he worships. And part of the worship is, again, an intercession. Lord, will you pardon the iniquity of my people? And will you take us for your inheritance? And the Lord says, absolutely, I'm taking you back. And the covenant is renewed. God gives his people grace that they never could have deserved. That's our first principle tonight. I want us to marvel at the mercy of God. Marvel at the mercy of God. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. You know, The Israelites weren't the only ones who've received God's mercy. That probably doesn't surprise you. But there's a guy in the New Testament who understood the mercy of God better than maybe any New Testament writer. It's the Apostle Paul. He writes this in 1 Timothy 1, starting in verse 12. I thank him who's given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. I love this passage. Paul is reviewing his testimony. And you know who Paul was before he was a Christian? He, he says it. He was a blasphemer, an insolent opponent. He was a persecutor. His goal was to take Christians and put them in prison and have them put to death. That was his livelihood. That was his goal, his passion, his purpose. He has a dramatic encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road, and everything changed. And he goes from being a persecutor to being a, a pastor, a church planner, an evangelist, a writer of Scripture who's had more influence on the church than almost anyone. But Paul anticipates uh, a thought that maybe gets put into your mind, in my mind. When we look at the record of sin in our life and say, can I really be forgiven? But I did that same sin like a thousand times. There's grace for that? Or, yeah, but... The other people that are at my table, like their resumes of sin are mild compared to what I've done. If they knew what I've done, they would ask me to go sit somewhere else. Now, Paul says, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst for a purpose. He received mercy so that you and I can't use that excuse. We can't say, I'm too bad to be forgiven. I've sinned too many times to be forgiven. Paul received mercy so that we could marvel at the mercy of God. A couple weeks ago, I had the great opportunity to speak uh, at a local camp for a junior and senior high students. We had a great week. The really fun group of students I got to work with. And it was maybe the third or the fourth night. I mean, these students had taken in um, some messages. Most of you have heard most of them. Um, and they heard the gospel, and we talked about baggage that they're carrying in their backpack, and we talked about forgiveness. We talked about spiritual doubt. And I love the speaking aspect of a week like that, but my favorite part is interacting with the, with the students. My favorite part is getting to talk to him one-on-one. And there's one, one young man who my heart just went out to, and uh, we had a chance to talk, and he couldn't even verbalize the things that had happened in his past, the things that he'd done. He's a middle schooler. And there was so much shame around, around his past. And he started to recount some of the things on his resume, some of the sins he's committed. And they weren't good. We're not talking about, I was mean to my brother yesterday. And he was just in tears sharing these things that had happened, these things that he'd done, middle schooler. And I grabbed my Bible. I opened to 1 Timothy 1. I flipped it around. I had him read it out loud, the passage we just read together. And we unpacked it. And for the first time, he understood that he could be forgiven. And the tears started coming down his face even more because they were already there. And uh, 
and he prayed to receive Christ. But it was this passage, the light bulb clicked. And maybe that's you. You know, I think we're all a little more like Gomer or the Israelites than we like to admit, don't we? Because we've all abandoned our covenant with God. We're created in his image. We're created to worship him. And then we worship everything else but him. And though we deserve death, though we deserve to be wiped out instantly, God said, I have a different plan. I'm going to send my son into the world in the likeness of flesh and for sin to become sin for us that in him we might have the righteousness of God. God restored and renewed his covenant with you through Christ. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. It's that easy. You have to trust in Christ. You've got to make him the king of your life. And then that forgiveness is applied to your account. Each one of us must come to a point in our life where we believe in Jesus. If you're not there, I don't want you even to leave tonight without knowing that you know Jesus. And if you do know Christ, we've got a lot of marveling to do, don't we? We like to forget about the resume of sin for right reason. But we've been forgiven a weight, a debt we never could dream of repaying in a million years. And you look at what God gave to the Israelites, it was cool, right? He gave them his presence, he gave them land, gave them blessing and earthly inheritance. If you know Christ, you don't just have an earthly inheritance, you have an eternal inheritance. If you know Christ, you're not just getting a plot of land in Israel. You're getting a new Jerusalem. If you know Christ, your sins, past, present, and future, are wiped clean forever. The gift that we've been given through Christ is deeper than anything that we could fathom. It's an incredible promise. And after Moses encounters God's mercy and his grace and his goodness, he responds with worship. He falls on his face, he worships, and Moses again makes a request of God, a gentle plea. God, come with us. Don't abandon us. And the Lord grants his request, doesn't he? He says, I'm coming with you. That's the second thing I want us to do tonight, is to rest in the reality of God's presence. Rest in the reality of God's presence. You know, you noticed what Moses said earlier in the text, didn't you? He looked at God and said, I am not going to the promised land unless you come with me. Unless you lead the way. I'm not going without you. I think that's so wise. Because Moses knew who he was without God. Without God leading the way, Moses was an 80-year-old washed-up ex-convict who couldn't talk in front of people. He was no selection to have the hardest leadership job of anyone on the planet. He knew who he was. He knew if God wasn't leading the way that... He needed to stay on top of Mount Sinai. Moses said, God, I'm not going unless you come with. Think of how that applies to us. Say, you and I have God's presence in a special way, a real way, but a a different way. When someone turns from their sin and trusts in Christ, they receive his spirit. The third person of the Trinity comes and lives inside of us, 
1 Corinthians 3.16 says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You understand the play on words, right? The Old Testament, God's Spirit, His presence resided in the tabernacle, which became the temple. And now Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, you are the temple. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit where God dwells, resides here on earth. You understand how radical that is? And if you know Christ, God lives, dwells in you. Ephesians 1 says the Holy Spirit, he's the the seal of our eternal inheritance. He's the deposit of, of, of our eternal inheritance. And when God makes a down payment and deposit, he's not going to default on future payments. Our relationship with the Holy Spirit is permanent, not just earthly, but eternal. Love what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, he tabernacles in us. We have God's presence in a way that the Israelites would have been completely jealous of. God in you. But if we're honest, we have the opposite problem, Moses, don't we? We're not in our prayers saying, you know, God, I'm not going to work today unless you come with me. Or I'm not showing up at church tonight unless you come with me. Or I'm not going to take this exam unless you come with me. We don't think like that. We think the opposite way. We forget that we have the Spirit. We forget that He dwells inside of us. We limit the influence of the Spirit in our life because we take Him for granted. So how can we become more aware of God's presence, more aware of the Spirit's influence in our life? I think it begins with a a simple prayer, a simple request. Father, make me more aware of your Spirit. Make me more sensitive to the Spirit's leading. Or even Ephesians 5.18, fill me with your Spirit. Ephesians 5, it's a, it's a fun chapter. 5.18 is a fun verse. It says, don't get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about that tonight. But be filled with the Spirit. The Greek word, plerao. It's a present active indicative verb, which I know all of you care deeply about. In other words, it's a continual action. It's not a one-time past tense thing. It's in the present tense. This is a continual, repeated thing. We are continually being filled with the Spirit. Wait, how does that work? I thought we were dwelled by the Spirit. How can we continually be refilled by the Spirit? Well, both are true. They're two different things. Our relationship with the Spirit begins when we become a Christian and He dwells, tabernacles in us. We're never going to lose the Spirit. But we can have more or less of the Spirit's influence in our life. That's what it means to be filled by the Spirit. So how? (laughs) How are we filled by the Spirit? Well, I'm thankful in Ephesians 5, Paul gives us a couple clues. The first thing he says is addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You want to be filled by the Spirit? then worship with God's people. Sing with God's people. Make third Monday worship service a priority. Make those worship nights that I hear about spontaneously happening within young adults, which I think is incredible, make that a priority. Certainly make Sunday morning worship at church a priority. Because young adults, we are not a church. We are part of a church, but we are not a church. So you, by coming on a Monday night, I'm assuming that you're even more committed to church on Sunday morning. Some of you have heard about our plan for the fall where 
Um, we're changing our small group life group model a little bit. You can sign up for groups. You can tell us what you want, who you want to be with, what type of group you want to be in. But by signing up for groups, you're saying it's my goal to come three out of four nights that our small group meets, which is a high bar. But that's going to make our small groups deep and committed and real, and I'm looking forward to that. But if you sign up for that small group, which I really hope that you do, I believe by signing up, you're even more committed to church on Sunday morning than you are to coming to young adults on Monday night. We can't neglect meeting together. We need to worship together. If we want to be filled by the Spirit, we've got to be singing with God's people. And then Paul says, always giving thanks. If we want to increase the Spirit's influence in our life, then we have to cultivate hearts of gratitude. Practice being thankful, not selfish, not entitled. And we want to be grateful to God, thanking Him for the gifts that He's giving us in our life. And then third, Ephesians 5.21 talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. If we want to be filled by the Spirit, we have to spend time with people who are also filled by the Spirit. It sounds obvious, right? But sometimes we prioritize spending time with people who don't claim Christ, who aren't influenced by the Spirit. We want those closest relationships in our life to be people who walk closely with Jesus. Follow them. Surround yourself with them. Get to know them. Ask them to be your mentors. The reality is that we experience the glory of God in a way that the Old Testament saints would be jealous of. We have the spirit that they could only dream of. Prophesied in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, of the day when God would change a heart of stone and a heart of flesh when he'd put his spirit within his people. That's us. We are experiencing the fulfillment of those prophecies. However, we still can't experience the glory of God that Moses wanted. If we experienced the fullness of God's glory, which was Moses' request, what would happen to us? We die. Instantly. We can't handle it. But the day is coming when we'll experience God's glory and live. When we'll behold the fullness of his greatness, his grandeur, his beauty, and we'll live to talk about it. Actually, we'll live forever to talk about it. And we're not going to have this feeling in the pit of our stomach of, oh man, I deserve to die right now, this, this fear. No, there'll be this reverential awe, this worship, this joy beyond anything we've ever experienced. I hope that's a day we're longing for, looking forward to, and hoping for, when we'll behold his glory for all of eternity. And what a great request for us to pray. Father, show me your glory. I can't wait to experience your glory and its fullness. Let me pray. Father, it's been a good night together to hear a testimony from Morgan of how you've worked miraculously in her life to look at Exodus 33 and 34 and just to, to see and marvel at your mercy and the reality of your presence. Father, make us more aware of your Spirit's influence in our life. Fill us with your spirit. Make us sensitive to his leading in our life. May we be a young adult family that's sensitive to the spirit. People who are led by your spirit. May we do those things Paul outlines in Ephesians 5. Singing together. Worshiping together. Surrounding ourselves with believers. Extending hearts of gratitude. 
Father, it's been a good night tonight. We're thankful for your kindness and your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.